I think there's going to be more virtual corporations right now. I mean, I just mentioned food space. Food space is one of them that they have employees all over the place. It does not matter where you live. And that is going to expand the workplace opportunities. So those people who are in Montana, South Dakota, North Dakota, Wyoming, who didn't have the richness of opportunity to Silicon Valley or Boston or New York City are going to have that open to them with the advent of work from many different places. That's not going to be true in all areas. In life science, one still has to have a physical place because there's going to be laboratory experiments. So that's going to pretty much stay the same. But in a lot of the tech fields, the openness of that is going to continue to be there. Welcome to the SIDCast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. Welcome to the SIDCast. Here we are at episode number 98. Hard to believe that uh, we've gotten to 98 already and the countdown is on up to 100 and beyond. Today, my guest is Marjorie Radlozandi. There's just a lot to talk about with Marjorie. She's an experienced angel investor, which means that she puts her money in privately in startups to support entrepreneurs. She's a board director, a mentor, a consultant, And she, in particular, focuses on mentoring CEOs of early stage companies in life sciences and diagnostics and software and IT, clean tech, ed tech, and a few other areas as well. She's heavily involved in the angel investment groups around the Boston area and in the Northeast. And in fact, half of her investments are in women-led businesses, and 50% are led by people of color. She's got quite a track record as an executive herself. She's worked in Silicon Valley. She's worked as part of the Boston life science diagnostic sector. And she was one of the first employees in a food diagnostic company that was supported with angel funds that she helped expand into 100 countries and ended up selling the business to a $2 billion publicly held firm. So she has a tremendous track record as an entrepreneur, as a business grower, as an investor, as someone that has gone out of her way to support entrepreneurs that come from underrepresented groups. And she comes from a family of entrepreneurs as well. It's kind of in her blood. Her first entrepreneurial venture was when she was 19 years old. She helped create a sailing program near Burlington, Vermont. So she's very interesting and You know, I like to share two or three key themes or highlights that come out of each podcast episode right up front so you kind of know what you're getting into. And so here they are. Number one, a question. Can you create an algorithm to predict entrepreneurial success? Can you create an algorithm to predict the success of any person when they're in college, an MBA program, or even in post-college? I've been fascinated with this question for years. And of course, venture capitalists or angel investors like Marjorie, they're making bets on people pretty early on. And so in a sense, they're trying to figure out that algorithm. I've thought about it in the context of my own students, you know. So many of my students are bright and high potential, high aspiration people, but not everyone makes it at the same level, at least in terms of business success and certainly financially. And I've thought about what it takes and I don't have a formula for you. 
You can put down your pen. There's not these three or four things that you need to do to be successful. It's obviously much more complex than that, but it's certainly something that Marjorie has some firsthand experience with. And so I ask her about that, and we, uh, we kind of debate that a little bit. It's a really interesting question. Number two, the entrepreneurial mindset. You know, when an entrepreneur is confronted with a problem or, you know, they see something doesn't work, rather than just complain about it, which, you know, I might do, they start thinking about how to solve that problem. They can't help it. Rather than, you know, dealing with inertia and just the fact that, oh boy, this doesn't work, what a pain in the neck, the entrepreneurial mind just immediately gets to work to try to solve it. It's almost like you can't stand having to compromise or adjust to something that doesn't make sense to you. And that's the entrepreneurial mindset in a nutshell. It also helps explain, by the way, why so many entrepreneurs find it difficult to work in big established companies because there are systems in place. Things work a certain way and entrepreneurs are always asking, how could we do it better? How could we do it different? Kind of like how my super boss leaders think about talent and leadership as well. Point number three, it's an age old point, but it's really important. Are we setting up people for success and not failure? And when we invest in people, when we hire people, when we're parents supporting our own kids as they grow up, what are we doing to set them up for success and not failure? And are we thinking about that? And sometimes the thing we don't often or maybe enough recognize is the enablers, the supporters, the allies, the sponsors, the interference runners, all these people that play a role in each of our own success. As just one example, Boris Groisberg's professor at Harvard Business School, and a number of years ago, he wrote a book that was really interesting. It was about investment analysts. He was looking at what happens when hotshot investment analysts leave one Wall Street firm to go to another. Are they just as successful in their new firm? Because they're going to get, you know, they get recruited away with big contracts because they've been pretty good at their job. And the answer is, well, when they bring their teams with them, their track record of investment analysis success continues. But when they don't bring their team with them, when it's just them, they don't do as well. And isn't that kind of interesting, right? No matter how successful we are, we have an infrastructure, we have supporters, we have a team, we have our village that helps us be successful. And it's not always so easy to just jump off and go to a new place and think we're going to be able to replicate or even exceed our past successes when we don't have that support network in place. And I think that has a lot of implications for business, for parenting, for kids we bring into universities as well. You know, we bring in a lot of talented kids and are we putting them into a spot where they don't have the infrastructure to support them? And that's something that's going to come up in next week's podcast as well, as it turns out. So lots of interesting issues, as always, that come up that we debate in the podcast. And this one is, you know, even more so because Marjorie Ranlow Zandi is just really interesting to talk to, very, very thoughtful, very serious about her work. That makes a difference. And it's always great to talk to people that are maybe more unusual in their field. There are not nearly as many women who are venture capitalists and angel investors as there are men. And Marjorie has done it. Marjorie continues to do it. And for that reason, I think she's just a great guest for the SIDCAST. So let's bring her in the room and start our conversation. Welcome to the SIDCAST. This is Sid Finkelstein. And today I am here with Marjorie Radlozandi. Hi, Marjorie. Hi, Sid. Good, good to, to be here. Yeah, it's good to have you on the podcast. Where are you calling in from? I'm calling in from Boston, Massachusetts. Boston. Okay. Well, I'm a mayor two hours north of that in Hanover, New Hampshire. 
two hours when there's no traffic, which of course is what people say all the time, but it never happens. Although during COVID, it has happened. Um, I've done the drive many times by lots of things that I do in Boston, and it's taken as long as three hours, which is not exactly a lot of fun. One of the only or very, very few positive side effects of COVID is that there's much less traffic on the road, but I'd rather get the traffic and get rid of the COVID once and for all. So where have you been actually during the past year? Have you been in Boston or you've been in other places? For the most part, I've either been in Boston or I've been around the coast, around Cape Cod. I've spent some time on the beach as well, both in the summer, the fall, and believe it or not, even in the winter. But in the Massachusetts area, there's so many beautiful beaches in Massachusetts. Additionally, we've been in Vermont as well. You know, I have a colleague. He used to actually teach at Harvard Business School. Now he's up here at Tuck at Dartmouth. And he used to love to go to uh, Martha's Vineyard in winter definitely off season. And he just loved to be on the beach. He just liked the feeling for it. So, you know, it's kind of funny how everyone gets their relaxation mode. So you're really a lifelong entrepreneur and in the entrepreneurial milieu, if you will. And I'd like to start our conversation by asking where this all came from. I mean, did you grow up thinking, you know, sitting around the table talking to, I don't know, one of your parents or your parents or siblings or aunts and uncles talking about business or talking about ideas for business? Where did it come from? So I come from a family of entrepreneurs. This started way back. My great-grandfather was a grain merchant in St. Petersburg, Russia. And my grandmother and great-grandmother had an entrepreneurial spirit as well. And my father did. And so that was an aunts, uncles, cousins, great-uncles, great-aunts were just an entrepreneurial family. So it was kind of just the way that we were and the way that I saw people live their lives. They thought about businesses, thought about new businesses, thought about expansion, thought about different ideas in kind of adjacent fields. So I guess it's part of my DNA. Yeah. And so do you actually recall people be talking about this? I say the proverbial dinner table, but wherever it happens to be. And did you have that curiosity? I mean, what you're describing is it was normal. So, right. It permeates into the DNA. It does. Right. But you're a little girl looking and watching then, you know, teenager, whatever. Did you feel like this is a path you might take at some point? I actually didn't. I ended up, my first entrepreneurial venture was a actual sailing business in Burlington, Vermont. I love to sail. I went to the University of Vermont. And I said, why isn't there a sailing program here, sailing business? This is fantastic on Lake Champlain. It was just natural to me. I just started it. Uh, worked with municipalities and private organizations and formed a sailing business of type and probably the first one in Burlington, Vermont. It's now grown quite a bit larger. There's been quite a bit of investment. I'm sure Bernie Sanders has something to do with that. So that's more of a natural inclination and one that I did very early. Yeah. I mean, that's a classic entrepreneurial story, isn't it? You see something, you wonder why, why is it working that way? Why does this not work? Why don't we have that? And rather than just complain about it, you actually do something about it, which is really, you know, that's the switch that I have seen now for a long time with entrepreneurs. We all like to complain. We all like to wonder. We all like to think, but actually fix the problem and fix that in a way that could be beneficial for other people. And if it happens to lead to wealth generation, that's a good thing. But if you solve a problem that other people have, and it's a meaningful problem, you actually create something important. That's the switch. So what did you learn from that sailing business that you started? 
I learned that creating something new is really, it's important. You have a plan, you focus on doing it. I think you have a bit of a vision, but you focus on what needs to be done and it's built over time. And that's really similar to the business. I was a founding member of a business in food diagnostics that went throughout the globe, but it's a matter of step-by-step having the vision, but doing what needs to be done on a day-to-day basis. And really, as opposed to worrying and you have to plan, but I think one can fall into the trap of analysis paralysis sometimes. Really, the most important thing is have your vision, execute your vision, get the go-to-market plan and go and execute well. How do you think about inevitable problems, mistakes, failures that happen along the way when you're action oriented as opposed to, I mean, it doesn't mean you can't make mistakes if you plan. Very often you make even more mistakes. Nonetheless, when there's a bias for action, which is, you know, a great thing and something I think more and more people understand to be central to any career, in fact, not just for entrepreneurs, but some things are not going to go right. So how do you think about that? I think you look at it in terms of percent, and you could also look at it in terms of hiring. I've hired an awful lot of people, and I think that if you're looking for 100%, it's not going to happen. But you say, you know what, if you can bat 90%, and that's the same thing whether you're talking about products, if 90% of them are brought to market, that's great. You're always going to have that 10%. It's also the same. I'm an angel investor now in my angel portfolio. You're not going to expect 100%, but you shouldn't let the worry about the 10% that's going to happen. And that's if you're lucky, get in the way of growing, whether it's growing your business, getting into other countries, creating other products, creating a new business business. Really understand that's just the inevitable part of growing a business. There are going to be stumbles along the way. And what you do is you just you redirect and put your head down, figure out a little bit went wrong, but don't go overboard in terms of overanalyzing it. Figure out, regroup, and figure out where you're going to go next. I often said that nobody gets 100% market share of anything. And that's the same type of idea that you're describing. But somehow there are people, maybe a lot of people that they don't have that insight and they feel like they've got to get it right. They can't make a mistake. And it's really unfortunate because they're going to be unhappy because they're going to make a mistake and it could derail them. It could disrupt them. What happened in between the sailing venture and the food diagnostic startup? What are some of the things you were doing in between? Okay, so I got my BA degree, then my MBA degree, and went off to Silicon Valley. And actually, it wasn't my opportunity, it was my husband's opportunity in Silicon Valley that we didn't want to miss out on. And I thought, okay, I'm going to go to Silicon Valley. I don't have a job. Within three weeks, I had 15 offers. It was just a very... 15 offers? 15 offers. You're exaggerating a little bit. No, I'm not. How did you get 15 offers? How does that happen? It's a matter of, and actually in some ways right now we're going through it. There's a really, in terms of certain type of talent, whether it's software engineers, developers, product managers, that's happening right now. There's just not enough of them. And there weren't enough people to supply all the innovation that was needed in Silicon Valley. Anyway, so I got 15 offers, picked one and was at a few companies in Silicon Valley, which really focused on uh, go to market and learned an awful lot about technologies, taking technologies in terms of an international market. 
And actually, I was offered a job to be employee number three at Mosaic, which was the precursor to Netscape. At the time, I was pregnant and had multiple meetings with Mark Andreessen, who really wanted me to join the company. But I just knew what demands that would be in order to really execute on his vision. I just wasn't prepared at that point to work 80 or 90 hours a week, which it would take. So I declined the offer. But so that's why I call my daughter the billion dollar baby, because (laughs) that's very funny. Have you stayed in touch with Mark? I have not, but I think I may go back and try to touch base with him. He's become very, very successful. He's yeah, he's a legend of Silicon Valley. I mean, he's a venture capitalist. He's a guru. And it was Mosaic that really got him started. He was probably that's right. He was probably pretty young at that time. I'm gonna. He was, and he had a full head of red hair. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you remember that well. Yeah, I do. Just to help us, what year are we talking about? When you got the 15 offers and you moved there, what year was that? I was in Silicon Valley from 1983 to 1992, but it was 1983. It was 1983. Wow. So that's 18, 17 years before the big internet bubble burst has you know, everyone said, well, that's it. We're done with that. And that was the biggest mistake anyone's ever going to make. We're not done with that. And we're still not done with that, as we'll talk about, because it's kind of taught. You mentioned DNA. Entrepreneurship is in your DNA. Well, technology is in the DNA of the economy. It's not going away. The mutation has occurred. That's <laughs> uh, right. I, I don't think there's anything that's not going to be tech driven. I mean, it's hard to imagine any business that's not going to be tech driven. But OK, let's go back then. So you had a couple of different jobs. You learned a few different things. And then what led to this food diagnostic thing? So I was doing great in Silicon Valley. I love my job. There's all sorts of opportunities. But then I was asked to be on the board of a tiny little company called Vicam, who was a food diagnostic business and needed to scale throughout the globe. So I was given an opportunity to be on the board. And then I offered my opinions on how to grow the business to 100 countries. And then the board looked back at me and said, Marjorie, how do you feel about moving to the East Coast and being on this company? We'll give you a percent ownership. And so that I took a cut and pay, but got a percent ownership. And I grew the company to actually over 100 countries in food diagnostics. And as we also came out with many, many different products. So that was over a number of years. And then what I did is it was time to exit because the company was funded by angel investors who wanted to get their return. Understandably so. I do too, as an angel investor myself now. And I led the M&A effort and secured 10 offers for the company. And we eventually sold to the best cultural match, which was Waters Corporation. And so what I did after that point is I ran the business as a business unit of Waters Corporation. I have just remarked 10 offers. So you are a double digit type of person. I think that's the first. Maybe. I mean, that's unusual. I've been around the M&A world. It must have been quite a company. But I, I want to go back. There's like a lot of things I want to ask you about. Yeah, right. Especially in the early days in Silicon Valley. What was it like to be a woman in Silicon Valley in 1983? Were you the only female out there? Of course not, but probably close. I'd say there was often times where I'd be one of the only females in the room in Silicon Valley. That was absolutely the case. I think that it was a very male-oriented culture, mostly white males. And yes, there was sexism along the way, but I'd say that I had some fabulous mentors along the way in Silicon Valley. I mean, learning opportunities were tremendous. And if you were able 
to take advantage of that and learn from the tremendous amount of terrific people and leaders there, you really could get an awful lot out of it. But yes, as far as I think any woman you'd interview in that time who was a professional in Silicon Valley, there were a few challenges along the way, but you know, you can't let that get in the way of your progress. That's interesting because of course, in more recent times, we've read and heard all kinds of stories and they continue the stories, including in the venture capital business and how many female-backed uh, entrepreneurs, how many get actually funding compared to male-backed and how many women are venture capitalists. I think it's, I I'm not sure if it's 2% or 5%, it's a very small percentage. And so you've had your finger, even though maybe you haven't lived in Silicon Valley regularly, but you've had your finger in that world. Do you feel like it's changed dramatically with respect to the role of women and opportunities for women? I think it has changed quite a bit. It needs to change a lot more. But even if I look at the angel investor community, it's 25% female. So it definitely has changed. And if I look at the companies coming up, again, I'm looking with a more of a Boston lens. So we have a lot of life science companies in the Boston area, and that may shade it more than all tech. But if you look at it, there's an awful lot of women companies. And I'm not, if you look at in terms of the portfolios of angel groups that I'm part of, I'd say at least 25% are women. And as far as my personal portfolio, in terms of women-led companies, it's 50%. And it's also 50% people of color. And in terms of the group, it's a very, very diverse group. And that is by design. Because when we have entrepreneurs pitch, we want to make sure that they see some people in the audience that look like them. It just makes it more comfortable. And as far as our investment goals, we want to have as broad a look as possible about all the possible fantastic companies that are out there. So you said that in your own portfolio, 50% are women-run companies? Yes, and people of color. So, and 50% people of color, yes. And so that has to have been a specific strategy because I'm going to guess that the population of potential candidates doesn't fit 50-50 on both sides. And you even described, you know, it's gotten so much better, 25% of the angel investors are women, but it's still not 50%. So why have you targeted in particular entrepreneurs of color and women? I think I look at more on a broad spectrum. I think that I, as a person, I am looking for great companies. And that has been the result. I'm able to see a lot of fantastic companies that are led by women and people of color. Again, mostly in the greater Northeast area, but there's just so many that I see. And certainly I invest in companies led by white males. I happen to be on the board of one of them, QSM Diagnostics. And there's fabulous companies that I invest in that have that component. But I don't know whether I really look purposely with that in mind. It's just that I look for great companies and this is the result in terms of my individual portfolio. Yeah. So in terms of what you find as attractive investments, it turns out that people of color and women actually do better in your analysis. That's what that means. That is, I am not targeting. Yeah. And if I'm targeting for anything, it's investments that make a social or environmental impact. And that's because that's part of your value set. That's it. That's it. And these are always for profit, right? These are. Yes, they're all for profit. Yes. Yeah. yeah so if, if you're interested, I can give you some examples of some of them. Yeah, sure. 
Okay. One which I talked about before was QSM uh, Diagnostics. And what that company is doing is changing the way we bring our pets to the veterinarian. Typically, we go to a veterinarian with a dog who has an ear infection. You go in, the vet looks at the dog, say, well, I think it may be uh, problematic, maybe pseudomonas, but I'm not sure. So the veterinarian does not want to treat the dog with antibiotics until there's a confirmation. Then a sample is sent to a laboratory and results are gotten either in two or three days. This is disrupting that. When you go to a veterinarian, they're able to take a sample of that right away, get you a diagnosis in 15 minutes. In addition to sodomonas, they're looking at other analytes too. And you're able to walk out of the veterinary office with your prescription. Don't have to go back again for another appointment and your dog does not need to have an additional infection for two or three days. It gets treated right away. So that's really disrupting the space. They're going to apply that technology to cats as well and also human applications. Another one is Torigen. Can I, can I interrupt you for a second? I want, yeah. to, I want to hear more about this one because I have a puppy, a COVID puppy, six months old. Oh, congratulations. Yes, very, very cute. She might jump on me in a conversation. I don't know, somewhere around here. And I don't want her to have an ear infection. And I definitely don't want her to have an ear infection one second longer. So I like this entire idea. Is this part of, I don't know if it's new technology or what's going on, but you know, take COVID testing, for example. We have the traditional tests, maybe it's called PCR tests. Right. But then there's these very quick tests. They're not quite as reliable. I guess there's more false positives, what I've read, I don't know. But there's certainly a trend towards this focus on speed. And I guess my question is, is this something, because you're very familiar with life sciences in general, is this something you're seeing just as, when you think about how do you create something new that adds an advantage over everybody else? Well, speed, diagnostic speed, is got to be in the short list of like really good things to try to do. Are you seeing this as kind of a category that goes beyond this particular company you've invested in, or even the COVID example? I would say that is, but also perhaps I'm a little biased too, because I ran a food diagnostic company for years that had those quick tests and also had laboratory tests too. But I think in general, people are looking for quick diagnostic solutions, but with a caveat that it's extremely accurate. And that's the differentiating factor that the technology now is getting more and more precise, quick easy, precise, less expensive, all which works in our favor. Could you explain in a rather non-technical manner how that works? You know, how this technology allows you to do a 15-minute diagnostic when that hasn't happened before? It's more or less a sensor-based technology that is employed. So it's actually captured very quickly. And also there's a small instrument that reads exactly what it is in a quantitative way. And that's very similar to the company that I ran for years where one would take a sample. And in my case with Vicam, it was a sample of a grain, a peanut, a wheat sample that would be run and would go through, it was called the lateral flow system, which is like a pregnancy type test that would be put into an instrument and also analyzed in a quantitative way. That's the difference now. There's much more quantitative, very specific test technology that's out there in a number of fields. Well, now you, you said, you know, you alluded to pregnancy tests. That's been around for a while and that's pretty quick. What's it, it's been so, around, yeah. Yeah, why is this taking so long to get into other spheres? 
I mean, that pregnancy test has been around for decades, I think. It has been. It's based on the lateral flow model. I think the addition is the quantitative version of that. It's much easier to have kind of a presumptive positive, presumptive negative, which has to be confirmed. But the technology, the real game changer is the technology, the quick test technology that takes 10 to 15 minutes, that's equally as accurate as technologies, PCR, when we're talking about COVID, HPLC, LCMS, if we're talking about testing for food, and also other laboratory techniques in the veterinary space. Does a company thinking about or has thought about doing a COVID test, especially the last number of months when there was gigantic need for a quick, there still is gigantic need for a very quick response time on a test that has equal accuracy to PCR? This company has not because they have a certain focus, but I have to say in terms of looking at my angel portfolio and companies that have come in and one that I've recommended the groups to look at, there's been a flurry of really innovative, quick COVID tests that are coming up. And what's also helped that quite a bit is the federal government. There's something called Radix, which is a really invest giving a lot of companies non-dilutive funding, which has helped this along tremendously. Yeah, for sure. And so this company you're talking about hasn't started, but is thinking about doing tests that would be for human customers, not doggy customers. Right. I think the start is dogs, then cats, then humans, because in terms of human diagnostics, it's a whole lot different in terms of the regulatory requirements that in the veterinary market or in the food market. Yeah, that has to be the case. Okay, that's really interesting. Did you have another example of a company that you think demonstrates some of the things that we've been talking about? Yeah, sure. I'll give you another veterinary one and I'll give you a food one if you're okay with that too. So let's, start. let's, jump, let's jump to the food one. Okay. I love dogs, but I really love food. <laughs> okay, great. Okay. This is a company, it's called Waku. And it's a company that it's based in Boston, but the product comes from the Andes Mountains. And I learned about this company. There was a lot of different company exhibition in the entrepreneurial space that I go to on a regular basis. This is one of them. And what this gentleman, Juan Geraldo, saw was there was a fantastic product out of the Andes. It was called the Healing Water of the Andes that helped in terms of upset stomach and just overall gut health. That was not available in this country. At the same time, the Andes farmers weren't making a good enough living. So what he did is he brought this particular product to the U.S. market and is now selling it. And it's an alternative. Some people love kombucha. Some people don't really like the taste of kombucha, but would like the benefits of that. It's a competitor in that space. But what he's done is, again, the whole social mission of helping the Andes farmers and at the same time introducing a whole new product category and helping with the health of people in the U.S. How's that business doing so far? It's doing very, very well. He started like a lot of food businesses. They end up starting regionally. He's in the Northeast and he's expanding. He has plans to expand throughout the country. Very interesting. The food diagnostic business that you spent the bulk of your career in, what problem was the company solving? There's something called uh, mycotoxins, which are naturally occurring toxins, which are brought on in many cases by climate change, either too hot weather or lots of floods that will cause this. So what happens on a worldwide scale, there's a lot of different regulations 
for mycotoxins that need to be adhered to. And so what our company did is provided tests for all the different toxins. And so one could test these products, whether importing products, exporting products, seeing whether the products that you brought into your processing facility have too high a level of mycotoxin contamination. So that is the problem that they're solving and they're still solving it today. They're also doing quite well. Very interesting. Let's get back to the angel investing. So a lot of my listeners know angel investing extremely well. Some are angel investors, but then there's a whole group of other people that are not really in business. They're in all kinds of walks of life and doing great things there. So I want to start with a little one-on-one as we work our way back up, okay? So what is an angel investor? An angel investor is an accredited investor. And what is an accredited investor? One that either makes at least $200,000 a year or has a million dollars of assets outside their home. And what angel investors do is help a company with its early capital requirement. It's right after, if you think about the friends and family rounds of a company. So one starts a company, asks one mom, dad, aunts, cousins to help and friends to fund that company, usually to the tune of maybe a hundred to two hundred thousand dollars. And then there's a proof of concept that's put together. At that point, a company often goes to a seed round or a series A round, and that's where the angel investors come in. It's before the VC and it's right after the friends and family round. How does the market work matching entrepreneurs to angel investors? There are a lot of entrepreneurs. Some don't actually know how to get funding. Many do, but many don't. And then, of course, there's plenty of angel investors that are organized, such as in groups you're involved with, but that there's lots of other people with, let's say, sufficient wealth that want to invest in certain types of companies. So I guess it's kind of a broad question, but if you were a public policy advisor to President Biden, I almost said Obama, President Biden, and he wanted to encourage entrepreneurship via angel investing. He wanted to look at the structural nature of the market. And the question he's asking is what I'm asking, which is, how does that matching process work? How well does it work? And what could be done to make it work better? How would you tackle that question? Okay. So the way it works now is that part of being an investor and part of investor group is really going out into the community and finding potential companies. And entrepreneurs, as you said, want to be found. So for example, I'm part of a number of groups. One is called the Venture Mentoring Network of Northeastern University. I went there, got my MBA there. And there's something called the Venture Mentoring Network, which matches entrepreneurs with both investors and also people who can help them along the way. And Harvard does the same thing. And now they've joined a group called Collegiate Capital Partners, which NYU, Penn, and MIT are part of as well. And so what they do is they work with angel investors like myself to see whether they're a fit for their particular angel groups. I also work with One Valley out of Silicon Valley in terms of their, and they also are kind of a mentoring group for different entrepreneurs, as well as a group in Switzerland, which is called Manatee Mentors, which matches mentors with companies that need to be funded and need to know, put the right pitch deck together, figure out next steps, and so on. I think where there's an opportunity for President Biden is helping those underserved communities and putting investment in underserved communities who don't have the friends and family around. A lot of people coming out of universities 
do have access to some university funds. That may not be the case for someone going who has a fabulous idea who's coming out of community college and may not have the investor network to get that proof of concept or they can get into the angel network and be considered as part of the angel network. I think that's an excellent idea because the leverage point for entrepreneurship, as you know, is gigantic. There are failures, but this is where jobs are created. They're yes. created by small companies, by startups, not really by the giants, even though you know Amazon keeps hiring hundreds of thousands, it seems, but that's still not a lot compared to what small companies do. So I like that idea. So let's walk through, kind of give us a feel of how you think and you do your own angel investing. Let's imagine I'll make up a company for you, okay? I mean, the details are not critical, but just to put some meat on the bones here. My wife actually teaches French and she does it in a public school, but she mostly does it privately. And she's invented many new techniques of teaching French, which are all about conversational and integrating culture and everyday life into the teaching of French. And it's fun. For some people that are not naturals at language, learning a language is painful because you got to start conjugating the verbs and doing all that stuff and it makes you crazy. But in fact, arguably much more important is just to be able to Go to a restaurant, look at a menu and talk to the waiter and say hello to somebody if you need to, some basics. So anyway, she's developed a lot of these materials. And let's say she wanted to take those materials and scale them as opposed to just her doing what she's doing. And she starts to do it because you need a proof of concept. So let's say she's now done this with, I don't know, four or five other teachers in different places. And she realizes there's a lot of energy here. People really seem to like this. It works. I know it works for having done it for 10 years, but I need some capital to help me grow this. And I need some expertise because I haven't run, haven't created a business. And so somehow she shows up in your screen at maybe at one of the events that you run. What would you do? What would you say? What would you ask? Okay. Fabulous idea. I'm glad she's doing that. And I agree with her. So I would first identify the total addressable market because that's something angels are going to look for. And typically angels look for a hundred million dollars of total addressable market or more. Then we're going to say, well, is it just you or is it a team? Do you have someone you invented the material? You're the technical founder, so to speak. Who do you have that's going to be commercializing it? Who is going to be part of your team to commercialize that? And then I would say, even if it sounds kind of premature and super early, you got to figure out a valuation for your business because angels will invest in something that's tangible. Sometimes it's a convertible note with a cap. Sometimes it's a price round, but there's got to be something that angels are going to look at. And then what you would look at, in her case, she has something very unique. Has Babel bought something recently? What are comparable valuations of companies that, let's say, Babel has, has acquired? And try to figure that out. And also, which I'm sure is the case, understand, try to educate oneself a little bit about the angel space and kind of have the necessary respect for the various people that you're going to be speaking with. That's also very important. That's interesting, that last point. It implies that there are entrepreneurs you meet that don't have that respect. And that puzzles me a little bit. Because if I'm going to you and I need your money to grow my idea, at a minimum, I should be pretend to respect you, let alone really respect you. <laughs> so what happened? I mean, is that common? I'd say it's less common, but it certainly has happened. And I think that there's difference between having a very healthy ego and having the move over to the arrogance spectrum. Once it moves over to the arrogance spectrum, it's kind of a 
problem. It's going to turn off people. Even the very best idea is going to be a problem because angels and VCs are too. They're looking to be a partner and helping the entrepreneur grow the business. So it's a win-win, but it's a partnership over many months and many years. And the challenge is if the entrepreneur is going to be arrogant and too egocentric with you, they're going to be that way with customers and prospects. And you're going to worry about the growth trajectory of the business. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. So as an angel investor, you not only invest, but you coach, you advise. Um, You may may not be on a board of directors, but whether you are or not, that's a big part of what happens, right? That's right. And as part of networks, like for example, Launchpad Venture Group, which I'm part of, we have 170 angels as part of that group. They're diverse and they're in diverse fields. And so it's an entire network that potentially could help an entrepreneur. So it's really just as important as the capital It's the actual expertise, the human capital that one can get and connections and advice as part of being part of a network. And what you're describing is particularly challenging for people from less economically stable environments where they just don't have that network. There's nobody in that network. So connecting that community to this kind of broader network that it's like a not quite a secret society because you don't want to be secret, but For people that don't know much about that, to know that there are all these people there, and if you have a good idea, you might get some money from them to support you, but they know everybody. Among the 170 people, there's nothing you might need that they don't have some experience on. doesn't mean you have to take it, but there's always something. That is really valuable, and I feel like that's just something that is still a big problem for people that are from poorer communities, minority communities, where there are not a lot of role models, and definitely not a network that exists out there. It's actually similar or analogous to students going to university. Certainly the top universities, probably every university is searching for underrepresented students that have the ability to actually make it through a top school. And sometimes, you know, Dartmouth does this, Harvard does this. We find some good people, not sometimes every year we find some good people, but then they're thrown into a situation where most of their classmates don't come from that background and have incredible resources that they sometimes never even seen. I feel like that type of blockage that exists, and that's maybe a systemic one is one of the biggest challenges to change the equation for the development of talent from underrepresented communities. I mean, I really see the analogy to what you're saying. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I'm actually working with one such person right now. I'm really glad you got connected to this One Valley group. And she's someone, she's from the Dominican Republic. She lives in Queens, New York. She comes from a family of hair salons. Her family was involved. She was a hairstylist. And she said, you know what? I really want to create a technology company around the hiring in this sphere. So I've spoken with her. I've connected with her. She's not ready for angel investing, but to try to help her with resources that are out there. And I think if we can do that type of thing on a larger scale, I think there's just going to be an awful lot of opportunities created. The one thing I'm really interested in, you know, there are algorithms in every walk of life now. Is it possible to create an algorithm to predict entrepreneurial success? Actually, that's interesting that you asked that. One company that presented to us at one of the angel groups 
thought they had the formula for doing. I don't, if my memory is correct, that's not one of the ones that we chose to pursue, but that was part of it. I think there can be an algorithm for a lot of different things, but I think there is a direct human element in terms of evaluation, working with different groups and trying to assess them. And I'm not quite sure that an algorithm could capture all that. Yeah. In sports, there's more and more influence of small practices that are trying to do exactly that. Sports have been revolutionized with advanced metrics, but then there's also the psychological side, whether that's kind of your innate ability to take charge, competitiveness, how fast you're a learner, which is gigantically important, especially in some sports that are really complicated, whether they look that way or not. But you know, the National Football League, football is a very complicated sport and needs constant adjustment. So there are some attempts to create algorithms in that area. And it's just one of those things I've always found interesting because I, yeah. my students are, you know, and they're MBA students, average age is 28. They're all smart without exception, but they're all going to end up in different spots. And brains actually is seldom going to be the primary driver for where they end up. They're all smart enough. And I used to think I probably could predict when I get to know these students, because they're all in my classes, I could probably predict with some success, not necessarily 100%, as we said, we never get that, who's going to be very, very successful because of some, in my mind, it's an innate algorithm from doing what I've been doing for 30 years. If I were ever try to create something around it, I'm sure it would not be that successful because it's really complicated. But I feel like there's something there. And I think this is not the next frontier. It's an existing frontier in multiple fields. You know, I asked you about entrepreneurial success, then I brought up sports, and I'm talking about my students. There are examples of, you know, funding for university students as well, where this plays in. I think it's maybe Purdue University that will pay for your university tuition, but you have to pay them back, and it's based on a scale of how well you do. And so they get to decide who they want to invest in in some ways. Yeah. So you haven't really seen a lot in that area. Well, I saw one company... But actually, there's another company that actually is, I didn't personally invest in them, but there's a company called MentorWorks that does actually invest in forms of a loan in terms of students to pursue a certain uh, curriculum. And a lot of them are from underrepresented communities. But typically, it's more for a specific two-year program. Sometimes it's a four-year program too. But then there's a question of whether you invest or not invest. So there's a little bit of that done at that point. But I think a lot of it from their point of view is the type of program it is in terms of when the university has admitted this person, there's confidence in that. And at the end of that, there's going to be income that will be coming in for that particular student. Right. Have you noticed over the years kind of an ebb and flow of different sectors in terms of their popularity or attraction to investors? I guess life science has been pretty strong for a long time. And certainly, you know, IT has been really strong. But within those broad fields, there's probably a dozen, if not dozens of subfields. So is there a cyclicality to this or a seasonality where some things become very popular or people get attracted to it and then it becomes less interesting? I mean, students ask me that question, a version of that question quite a bit. Probably, especially, I think in terms of the angel world, you talked about COVID tests, for example. If someone came to us about a year ago with the same proposition in terms of developing a quantitative COVID test, the response would be different than now where there's a glut of, of tests already 
on there that are about to be approved. So it's really a timing thing in terms of the market and investing. And sometimes there's a peak and, you know, and then afterwards, what's going to happen after COVID, there is going to be, again, a lull in terms of that. Also video gaming, same type of thing. So where is that now? Mm-hmm. I'd say right now, AI and machine learning, there's a lot of interest in that. And there's a lot of interesting startups in that area. Yeah, I was going to ask you, what's the trend that you're seeing now? Yes. It's, certainly it's that, right? And that applies to so many fields. It's not just the traditional kind of Silicon Valley tech thing. Do other countries have their own version of Silicon Valley? I mean, how unique is this, this kind of venture and account angel investors in the broader ecosystem? It seems in America, it's pretty powerful and a major driver of the economy. And, you know, Israel per capita has kind of crazy amount of entrepreneurship. China, enormous. But I don't know, but Europe, Canada, other places. It also comes down to cultural tolerance of risk. In terms of this country, there's more of it here and there's more potential investment. And so it's kind of like what happens first is the amount of investment. But I think it's an overall culture. And it's not in every part of this country. It's the Silicon Valleys. It's the Bostons. It's the DCs, the San Diegos, the LA. So, you know, there's different pockets of a lot of innovation, New York City as well. And I do see the same thing. India has a lot of companies coming out of India, right? Mm -hmm. Europe tends to be more conservative, more risk averse. Canada, there's a lot of great innovations coming out of Canada in the life science field. I'm sure in other fields too, I'm just aware of it in the life science field in all different parts of Canada as well. But I think it's a little more risk averse versus the US. You know, in Europe, we've seen that with the vaccine rollout. You know, Europe fell pretty far behind. And apparently some of the reasons have to do with, well, there's some bureaucratic bungling that went on, but, you know, America knows how to do bureaucratic bungling too. It's kind of negotiating too hard for the vaccines where price is the most important thing. And it's not the most important thing. It's getting those things as fast as you possibly can. Well, by the way, in Northern Europe, you have a kind of this strong entrepreneurial world in Sweden, for example. I don't know whether you include Denmark or Norway in there, but certainly Sweden, we see. Is there something special about that? What is it about that country that seems I to think be- there's a bit of an openness. I have a little bit of a window to Sweden. Actually, my husband's cousin was announced Entrepreneur of the Year in Sweden. Wow. So- yeah, so I asked and, I asked the right person. Yeah, you did. So we've been to Sweden many times. There's a lot of also immigration into Sweden too. It's much more of an open country. And there is a bit more tolerance for risk and risk of entrepreneurship. And there's also, I think, but you can say that for Europe too, in terms of the safety net that's there. But I think it may have to do with, she's an immigrant to Sweden and she has done extraordinarily well. And through her, I've met many other Swedish entrepreneurs. And it just seems to be a very accepted and interesting environment. And also there's a lot of available funding too. Right. So, you know, this episode is airing in summertime, 2021. I'm going to say the worst is over. And if I happen to be wrong, we're really in big trouble. What do you think is going to be kind of staying with us as a change? You know, this working from home and remote work and using Zoom so much and e-commerce growing gigantically and shopping for groceries and all kinds of things. They've just taken step function increases in customer usage through COVID. What do you think is going to stay with us And what do you think is maybe going to revert back to pre-COVID norms? I mentioned some of the changes, but there are other changes as well. Okay. So 
I think e-commerce and a lot of e-commerce is here to stay. I mean, one of the companies I am a advisor on is Food Space, which is making sure e-commerce is accurate. Before it was about 60% accurate in terms of what you see. Often I know that I've purchased four limes and then that wasn't available. And all of a sudden I got four packages of 10 limes. So I had 40 limes available. So that was a little crazy, but this food space is making that all more precise. So I do think e-commerce is there to say, I think we've gone from a few percent shopping for groceries online to almost 40%. So I may not be at 40, but I think it's going to stay at around 30 because people have realized that convenience. The other thing that's going to stay, I think there's going to be more virtual corporations right now. I mean, I just mentioned food space. Food space is one of them, that they have employees all over the place. It does not matter where you live. And that is going to expand the workplace opportunities. So those people who are in Montana, South Dakota, North Dakota, Wyoming, who didn't have the richness of opportunity to Silicon Valley or Boston or New York City are going to have that open to them with the advent of work from many different places. That's not going to be true in all areas. In life science, one still has to have a physical place because there's going to be laboratory experiments. So that's going to pretty much stay the same. But in a lot of the tech fields, the openness of that is going to continue to be there. I think we're looking also at much more of a hybrid model, whether you work for a large corporation, small, medium-sized corporation. I think the days of most people going to work and commuting the same basic hours five days a week, that's going to be changing. I think the efficiencies have been seen in working remotely, but yet we still want to get together and have that opportunity to be together and it helps with creativity and brainstorming and everything else. So I think hybrid is going to be what's going to be new coming out of this. Why do you think it's taken a global pandemic for these changes to take hold? In particular, let's just talk about the one you just mentioned at the end, which is working from home. Traffic, commuting time, wasted time for most people. And in big cities around the world, people that are maybe don't have all the resources, they could be living an hour and a half, two hours away. Even in LA, people are living in some distant suburbs, probably a lot of other places. And it's such a waste of time. And it's not necessary. And so there was very clearly a need. But I think there was this assumption among most executives that you have to be there, that you can't do business unless you come to do business. You got to be here. That's been blown up. That assumption is over. And maybe this is a statement about human nature, that it takes this kind of ultra extreme event and that it took something this extreme for people to be willing to even try it. We've had no choice but to try it. It took that type of thing. Yeah, I think that's part of it to see that it could work. But I also think there was that whole concept if the FaceTime, if you're not there, are you really working? So I think that has been proven false because there's a lot of productivity that's happening. In some cases, more productivity happening in some areas by working from this, not the constant interruptions that happen in the office. And one can really concentrate and take control of one's day. So I think that assumption has just been proven wrong. And I think Quite frankly, there's a lot of executives and managers that just felt they needed that control of seeing people in the office. I think that has been disproven, and I think it's going to be forever changed, at least in a lot of areas. You know, I think the connection to kind of what you do as you think about entrepreneurs and the right entrepreneurs to invest in, there's just this bias towards inertia that most people have to doing what's been done in the past because it's worked reasonably well. That's the way almost everyone thinks. It's like we start our conversation and how you started your sailing business on Lake Champlain, Burlington. 
uh, you saw a problem, and rather than just complain about it, you did something about it. Most people will stop at the complaining and quite enjoy the complaining. And so there's this kind of natural inertia that people have. And what COVID has done is blown it up. And the implications for multiple industries really, they're going to be significant from real estate to the restaurant business, yep. uh, you know, all the smaller restaurants. You know, yep. I'm in New York a lot, at least I used to be in New York a lot, and I've lived there. There's so many places that cater to the lunch crowd, right? And if you have a 20% reduction, let alone a 40 or 60% reduction, that's a gigantic hit to all of those. And then there's mass transit and traffic and parking. And there's a lot of implications that are going to play out that I guess the entrepreneurial mind is thinking, well, what can I do to help solve a new problem that's now been created? That's exactly right. Right. Yeah, that's right. There's all sorts of opportunities because of that. Again, I go back to shopping online. How many of us were shopping for groceries online? If you're not shopping online, you really don't care about the accuracy on an e-commerce site. But when you are shopping online, you want that label to be correct. Yeah, exactly. Wow, this has been really interesting. We're just about out of time, but I have one last question for you. And it's a question I'd like to ask everyone about advice, a bit of advice you have. But the twist on my question is the advice you'd give to yourself when you were 21 years old. So if you can magically go back in time and sit next to the uh, 21 year old Marjorie and lean over and say, you know, if there's one thing you wanna do or not do, there's one thing that you don't really understand it yet or you might not, but this is gonna be really important or this is what I know now looking back, what would be that one nugget of advice for yourself at the age of 21? I would say it would be to, when presented with choices, do the right thing. It's not always going to be the political expedient thing to do. It's going to take an awful lot of backbone, especially you're in your a room full of 20 people, 19 people who don't agree with you, but you still feel strongly about it. Don't be afraid. Push back. Push on your point. Don't be obnoxious about it, but really show the logic of your position and don't be afraid to stand up. You're really going to respect yourself and you're going to do the right thing, not only for yourself, but for your organization in the long run. Yeah, that's actually great advice and quite an entrepreneurial way of thinking about it as well, doing the original thing that you think is right. Marjorie, thank you so much for spending time with me and all of our listeners on the SIDCast. We covered a lot of ground from Silicon Valley to Cape Cod and a bunch <laughs> of businesses in between. Thank you and I look forward to hearing about more of your ventures and ventures in the future. Okay. Yeah, thank you very much. I enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to the SIDCast. I'm really excited to be bringing you season three and really appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series and you will never miss a single episode. I welcome all feedback and I'd love to hear from you. I've gotten some great commentary over the course of the first two seasons and lots of great suggestions as well. You can contact me via my website, www.thesidcast.com or you could email me directly at sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes and please give us a five-star review and share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The Sidcast is produced by the Podcast Laundry Production Company. <laughs>